It's great to be here. I, as uh, your pastor says, I uh, work with a ministry in Eastern Europe called Intentional Strategies for Transformation. It's a kind of a brand new work in many ways. We just recently, this past summer, I was there and we were able to finalize the, all the paperwork that needs to be done to make us an official non-government organization there in Croatia. And God is using that and I think going to use that in some tremendous ways uh, to move the kingdom forward in a place that has very much struggled to see uh, people coming to Christ. But God is giving us some new ideas for a new generation of young people. And this group of people that you had up on the platform leading us in worship this morning is kind of, in many ways, my target audience. Um, the late high school, college, and the people in their 20s, our passion is to do leadership development among them to create a new generation of leaders that will move the kingdom of God forward in that part of the world where it has been dark for a long time, but the light's beginning to shine there, and God is doing some really important things. And one of the reasons we're having this seminar at 2 o'clock that all of you are going to come to, so I'm really excited about that, except for the ones of you that are going to Israel, but you're excused. But everybody else, 2 o'clock, we're going to talk about a way, one of the ways that God is moving to help people, uh, emerging adults, become leaders, and that's in the area of mentoring. Uh, maybe, maybe a new term for you or something you don't really uh, do a lot or know a lot about, but it's a powerful way, as Pastor Allen said, for us to use who we are, the skills God has given us, the experiences we have, really no matter how young or old you are. God has put some important things in your life that you can pass on to this generation of young leaders that in Croatia and other parts of the Balkans have almost no opportunity to connect with an older person who will take care of their life and move them into the place where God wants them to be working in the kingdom. So I encourage you to spend some time uh, thinking and praying into that and also just come at 2 o'clock and we won't take a lot of your time but just give you a way that we're, we're piloting a program with Generations Church, we hope, that will begin to take what you know and connect it with young people there. So I think it'll be uh, something that would be very important for you to connect to. So thank you for that. I hate failure. I don't know about you. Maybe you're okay with the failure, but I hate failure. I hate failure more than I hate Brussels sprouts. I hate failure more than I hate canned tuna. Uh, I hate failure, I think, even more than I hate Satan. I hate failure. And for some reason, and maybe some of you can relate to this, some of you, maybe it's really not failure so much, maybe it's you hate being unvalued, or maybe it is you hate pain, and so maybe that's your motivator. But for me, the motivator is I don't want to be a failure. I just hate that. I hate it so much that even when I'm driving and I'm lost, I get angry because I'm failing at getting where I'm supposed to go on time. Maybe some of you can relate to how powerful failure can be in your life, even just the sense that deep down inside, maybe, maybe I just really haven't been or am not what I'm supposed to be. And for some reason, God has just kind of allowed that to continue to be a theme in my life. It started out when I was a very young child, when I was in first grade, for example. And, and uh, I failed so badly at, at making a good impression on my first grade teacher that whenever the class got to go to the zoo or on an outing, I got to stay in the principal's office. And then I 
played the violin. I was learning how to play the violin and as a, as a grade school student. And uh, I was so clumsy and awkward that there was a big Christmas tree in the center of our elementary school. And I managed to knock that baby over with my violin case right in front of everybody. I was, uh, I was also really bad at sports. I tried baseball, but I ended up getting hit with the ball more often than I hit it. Uh, and then I tried swimming, and that ended up, my goal for swimming ended up being to not be the, the, the last one, uh, to not come in last all the time. I just wasn't very good at a lot of things. For some reason, though, I really desperately wanted to be good at things and not be a failure. I continued to feel like Throughout my life, that was the trajectory. And so um, when I wanted to go to college, I thought, you know, I really would like to be a doctor. I really admire doctors, and I'd really like to go to medical school. My dad, he knew me well enough to know, you know, John, you better go get an engineering degree, because if you don't get into medical school, you're going to need a job. So he was an engineer. So I went to engineering school, and unfortunately with engineering school, well, you just it's really tough to get straight A's like you need to get to go to medical school. And so that really didn't work out either. Another place where I felt like I might be a failure. And, and so I became an engineer. And I worked in Africa and Israel and for a while. And then eventually the Lord called me to go to seminary. And I thought, wow, that looks like another place I could probably really bomb out. You know, this is one of the things, forgive my language. If you're a person who doesn't like to fail, you know, the, the, the internal feeling is I just don't want to suck. You know, is there anything that I can just not suck at? And, and so I thought, maybe I'll just try being a pastor, you know? Maybe I can do that. So I went to, I went to seminary, and uh, I didn't really intend on, on becoming a pastor. I just wanted, I thought, you know what, pastoring looks kind of hard. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just uh, get a doctorate in, in Hebrew, and I can hide in a, in, a, in a research facility or something and study the Bible. But the Lord moved me in this place where he said, no, 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 you're going to be a pastor. So he, uh, he allowed me to, to study for a while and get a degree in preaching and worship. And I taught seminary and, and I pastored a little church. And, and for, you know, for the first time really in my life, that kind of became my niche. I was like, oh, I can do this. I can mentor uh, emerging adults as they're going into ministry, and I can teach them how to communicate God's word. I pastored a, a little church, and we were really doing some good things in the community, and I was involved in prayer ministry across the city of Chicago. And I kind of, for 10, 12, 15 years, I kind of thought, oh, okay, finally, finally, I'm not knocking down Christmas trees, and, you know, I'm not coming in last. I'm actually, I can do this. And uh, about 2005, we were, I was pastoring and teaching, and my wife was working as a nurse there in Chicago, and we were, we were just right in the middle of it. And I got a phone call from a woman who lived in Lafayette, Indiana. That's where I went to college at Purdue University. Now it's 30 years later. And she says, we have a church here. We've heard you preach. We've visited your church. We'd like you to come down and interview for our senior pastor position. And I said, one, I have no desire to live in Lafayette, Indiana. And two, I'm doing what I want here, so no thank you. But she insisted that we at least come down and talk. So we came down, talked to the search committee. Then over a period of time, we got a sense that, yep, it seemed like the Lord really was calling us to move down to Lafayette, Indiana, pack up, take my daughter who was in high school, take my wife out of her job, take me out of all the things I was doing, and move us down and plunk us down to Lafayette, Indiana at a fairly good-sized church as a senior pastor. And after a weekend conversation and some preaching, they voted unanimously. When's the last time you all had a unanimous vote here in your church? They voted unanimously for us to come there. 
And I thought, okay, this must be what God wants me to do. Hopefully I don't suck at this. So went down there, moved Kit and Caboodle down to Lafayette, Indiana, and there we were and started the process of, and I was a very different kind of pastor than the one they had before, and they really liked the, at least they gave the impression they really liked kind of my vision for how to move the church in worship and in God-centered ministry and some, some ways to move, you know, in the spirit and move it in the community. So they seemed to kind of grasp my vision, and we were moving along. But it turns out that behind the scenes, there was this group of people who really liked the way this was going, and they really wanted the church to go forward in that direction. But there was also another group that really kind of wanted the church to stay the same that it was. In fact, if they could go back to the way it was before, even before, they would like that. And there was this undercurrent of tension that I was not really very aware of. I've only been there a few weeks, a few months. About four months into the process, I went on a missions trip to Croatia and, uh, for a couple of weeks, and I came back. And then on Monday morning, or on Monday evening, the elder board called me into the, into the meeting room and they slid a letter across the desk, and they said, uh, uh, we no longer need your services. And they, uh, and they uh, basically paid me, over the course of four months, about $100,000. They paid me off to leave the church. And to do that with no complaint, don't talk to anybody, we just like you to go quietly. And I sat for a few seconds. I was praying into this. There was some noise about this happening, but I didn't know that it was going to happen this quickly. And the Lord just put his hand over my mouth, and he said, I want you to just do this. So I left. That would have been okay. Not really okay. It would have been painful. But to make it worse, they hadn't told the church until the following Sunday. What they told the church was that they had determined that I was unfit to be a pastor that I was unfit to be in ministry, that I was damaging their church, and they had to fire me because if they didn't fire me, I was going to damage the church so badly that it wouldn't be able to recover. And in addition to that, I was having psychological issues and needed to be hospitalized. They not only told this to the congregation of the church of 1,200 people, they also told that to the pastors of the city. So now I can't do anything. I'm blackballed. This situation, as you can imagine, brought me, my wife, my daughter, into a place of of deep pain, deep personal pain, deep shame, um, anger, depression, all the things, the grief that you go through when you go through a divorce. It brought me to a place where I felt probably the ultimate depth of failure that I'd ever felt. Not only did I feel like I had failed the church, but I had failed my family, I had failed the ministry, I had failed God. I was ultimately a failure. And the shame that I sat in, in that place, was deep, and it was long, years long. As you will learn, 11 years long. I'll tell you a bit, a bit about, more about how that happened, but the reason I tell you that story is because there is a power to failure that can take over your life. And if you don't recognize that power, if you don't recognize the depth of that shame, you'll believe, even though it's real and it feels like it's unrelenting, you're going to believe that it's permanent. 
And I believe that God wants to tell us this morning that no matter what or how deep you have gone in your failure or in your shame, there is no place you can go that is permanent if you have a relationship with God. He will, he will show you the way forward from that place, which he has for me. But I want to I tell you a, a story about a biblical character. There is a lot of failure in the Bible. Have you noticed that? It starts in Genesis 3 with a big failure. That kind of is the reason we have all the other failure. And that fall created a whole series, a biblical, life, a biblical lifetime, a biblical a timeline of failure. Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Aaron, the kings of Israel, the prophets, the disciples, Paul the apostle, a Bible through of people who were failures, except for one. So one person in the Bible that wasn't a failure, Jesus. But other than him, we don't have a great track record. I think that this is something that God wants us to understand and know about. That no matter how powerful and how poignant our failure may be, it is never permanent if you walk with God. There's one of those stories that I want to, to, to show you this morning because it's one that God has really used in my own heart to walk me out of the valley of the shadow of failure that I've lived in. That's a story of the Apostle Peter. You know that Peter dramatically failed, even though he wanted very much not to, dramatically failed by denying Jesus on the night of his death. And that failure, I think, caused a level of shame in Peter's life that required, it really it required Jesus himself to come for him to recover. And I want, I want Peter, in fact, to tell you that story. This is a, uh, if you can't tell, this is a fishnet here. And uh, it's a very pretty one. Peter was a fisherman. And I'm going to put this on my shoulder just to remind you that it's actually Peter that's going to tell you his story. It was a dark night. Clouds covered the moon for some reason that night, though it was only a few weeks after Passover, and we were sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had told us after his resurrection that we were supposed to go back to Galilee and wait for him there. And so that night, that's what we were doing. We got back to Galilee, and of course, we'd only been gone for three years, really, from what we had been doing. Everybody else was out there cleaning their nets and, and casting them into the water at night, and so we just decided we didn't have anything else to do, and really the only thing that we knew how to do with any success was to fish. So we got into our boat, and we, James and John and some of the rest of us, and we went out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the lake, and we fished, or at least we attempted to. I mostly just sat and brooded because I was in a place of such deep shame, such deep regret. There was such an, a powerful sense of failure in my own heart that I really didn't even have the emotional wherewithal to throw a net in the water. I really, in many ways, just wanted to throw myself into the water. I mean, what do you do after the kind of failure that I 
experienced? What do you do when you reject your best friend and pretend that you don't even know him just to save your own life? And I sat there and I brooded in the darkness that night while the waves splashed around our boat and we threw the net back and forth, but it was futile. We didn't catch anything. Kind of made sense, I guess. We weren't successful at... At least I wasn't going to be successful at fishing men. Why should I be successful at this? As the light started to kind of come up, um, dawn started to kind of break over the, the eastern side of the sea, one of us saw a figure standing out on the, on the, on the beach a couple hundred yards away, and he yelled out to us. He said, brothers, throw your net on the other side of the boat. As soon as I heard those words, something clicked into my mind. I've heard that before. I heard that same thing about three years ago when somebody said, throw your net on the other side of the boat, and we caught more fish than we could handle. And so we did, incredulously, of course. We're fishermen. We know the lake better than some guy who doesn't even know how to get into a boat. But We threw our net on the other side of the boat, and, of course, it filled up with fish so fast we could barely handle it, breaking the nets. And as we're being dragged into shore, we realized, wait a minute, we've heard this before. We know who this is. Someone says, it's the Lord. And I looked more carefully, and I realized, yes, it had to be Jesus. And I, I, I threw myself in the water, and I walked and swam my way up to the shore, and I saw he he looked different than I'd seen him the last time. He was after the resurrection, and I didn't really understand what that meant precisely, but I knew it was him, and I, I just, my wet body, I just wrapped my arms around him, and I dropped my net, and I said, Lord, I, I embraced the, the one person that somehow in the middle of my heart knew would understand, my best friend. And he invited us to sit down. He already had a, a, a fire going, a charcoal fire and some fish. And he said, come, brothers, eat breakfast. We, are, we didn't really know what to do. I mean, the last time we'd really seen him alive, he was, you know, he was about to go to a cross. And we were just not sure what was happening. But we sat and we ate and we, we chatted. And then, but, you know, there was just that feeling of heaviness over my heart. So I knew that... that uh, that my failure was just it just felt like something that couldn't couldn't be overcome. And Jesus during the meal, you know, he he looked at me, looked me in the eyes. Well, he had something to say. And I remembered. I remembered my life with him. And I thought back about the events that had got me to that place. I remembered the life that I had had with him three years ago. He had, to those very shores, he had he'd called us. He called me and my friends, James and John, and he said, I want you to come with me. We didn't really know what that would entail, but for some reason there was something that was so compelling about Jesus when he had walked out of the desert and and walked up to to our lake and looked at us and said, you, I want you guys to follow me. I'm going to show you how to be fishers of men. So for some reason we did. 
We had no idea what we were doing or what we were getting ourselves into. But we spent three years walking around and watching, talking with Jesus. We watched him as he would literally walk up to people and know what was going on in their hearts and tell them how to move toward God. He could walk up to someone and put his hand on them and heal them of of maladies that they'd had since they were born. Blindness and deafness and make people walk. He would cast demons. Demons would flee from him when he came to their presence, begging them not to harm them. He knew people's hearts. People would walk up to him. A woman walked up to him once and just just grabbed a hold of his, his cloak, and she was healed of a disease she'd had her whole life. And then he would talk to us about the kingdom of heaven. He would talk to us about God and how God was our father. He would show us how to pray. Three years we walked with him and we saw him do miracles and and walk people out of their, their pain and their shame and their illness and their sin. And he became our best friend. We became his friends. And he loved us, and we loved him. And that was the relationship we had with him. And then we came to that Passover week. It was just a, my goodness, it was just a few weeks ago. That Passover where we all went up into Jerusalem together, and and as we got across the Kidron Valley and began to go up, someone brought a donkey up for Jesus to ride on, and people put palm fronds down on the street. And we walked, and they all shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is, this is the King David that has come to save us. It was a glorious moment. It was full of joy and energy. But at the same time, there were ups and downs that whole week as we, we went in in triumph, but then Jesus came to the temple and he began to teach. He began to teach with such power and with such authority. Some people thought he was one of the prophets himself, but then there was this this group of leaders and scribes and Pharisees and and temple leaders and religious leaders, and they hated him. And you could see that they were plotting all the time. How could they capture him? And he went up over the on the opposite side of the valley, and he, he sat down and he looked out over the city of Jerusalem, and he literally wept as he prayed over the city, and he saw how lost they were and how much they didn't understand how God wanted to save them and bring them out of the the forces of the law that no longer would save them. He wept over the city. He went in and he, he cast out all the money changers and he ran them all off because he said, this is a house of prayer. And we didn't really even know what to think. It's like the culmination. Is this when you're going to actually bring the kingdom in? Is this when it's going to happen now? Then it was time for the Passover meal. When the Passover meal, and he took us to an upper room, and we sat down together, and, and his demeanor changed. And suddenly he became, uh, became very serious. His words carried weight. And he began to talk to us about, as he took bread and said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. This was strange language for the Seder meal. took one of the, the chalices with wine in it, and he, he said, this is a blood, this is my blood, the new covenant. And we'd heard him talking about eating his flesh and blood, but we didn't really completely understand that, and now he's saying, this is what I want you to do. 
This is how you're going to live after me once I'm gone. You're going to live together under this covenant. Of course, we were talking about what was going to happen, and I was, I was adamant. Jesus, nothing's going to happen to you. I personally am going to protect you. I personally am going to die for you. Nothing's going to happen here. These Jewish leaders are not going to be able to take you. We're going to protect you. How little did I know of my own heart? How little did I know how weak I really was? He looked at me and he said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you so that after you fail, you'll be able to come back. And I'm thinking, nah, I'm not going to fail. I got this. We sang a hymn and we went across the valley to this little grove of olive trees, Garden of Gethsemane. And as the moon was glinting off of the silver leaves of the olive trees, Peter went kind of between their gnarled roots and went away from us a little way and knelt down and prayed. But as he was praying, we could see we were going in and out of sleep. We could barely stay awake. But when our eyes were open, we'd look over and we'd just see his entire body convulsing. He was just, he was being overcome by the decision, by the agony of what was happening and about to happen to him. He was sweating drops of blood. Sometime into the evening, he stood up and he composed himself and he said, they're coming. We could see the torches winding their way across the valley. We could hear the clanging of the swords and the shields on the soldiers. And they came up into the garden and Judas walked up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. And at that point, they grabbed Jesus. But he didn't resist It was almost as though he expected this to be happening. It was as though he wanted it to be happening. They tied his hands and they began to lead him off. I was so angry I wanted to kill all of them. I grabbed my short sword. I ran up to a servant and I sliced his ear off. I wanted to kill every one of them. And Jesus turned around and said, put away your sword. He touched the ear of the servant and healed it. And then he allowed them to take him away. And all the rest of the disciples just kind of scattered off into the darkness. They didn't want to have any part of this. They were afraid. And, and John and I were, well, we just simply couldn't let this happen to Jesus. We had to see what was going to happen. And so we kind of waited, and then we followed at a distance. We saw that they took him up into Jerusalem, into the high priest's house. There was a courtyard. They took him into the courtyard, and, and John knew the servant girl at the door, so she, he whispered something to her, and they let us in. And it was, it, was, it was chaos in there. It was a mob scene. The soldiers and the, and the other people in there were just crowding around Jesus and hitting him and yelling at him and cursing him and punishing him. And we stood around a coal fire that had been set up by some other people and we just kind of were watching. What, I was just feeling, what is going on here? What should I do? I mean, in one hand, I wanted to run up and just, just kill all of them and, and scatter them and grab Jesus. And at the other Part of me just wanted to cower and, and didn't know what to do. Sat by the fire and warmed my hands. And, and then eventually there was a girl there and one of the servants, and she kind of looked in the firelight. She looked at me and she said, you're, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? You know, when she said that, 
something inside my heart changed. All the resolve that I had to protect Jesus at any cost, to give my life up for him, suddenly melted. And when I realized, and when I listened to how badly they were beating Jesus, and when I saw that his life was in danger, I panicked. And something inside me said, protect yourself. So I told the servant girl, I don't know him. My heart sank. What do you mean, you don't know him? (laughs) He's your best friend. You just spent three years with him. You don't know him? I shrank back, waited for a little while longer, and kind of thought through the relationship that I had with Jesus and all the things that we had done together and and how important he had become to me. And then how did we get to this? And I, I heard them yelling, and I heard them beating him. Never made a sound. He didn't cry out. He didn't try to get away from them. I I felt like, given all the miracles he'd done and the way he'd been able to cast out demons and how powerful he was, it seemed to me that he would be able just to speak and they would all fall down. But he never did. He allowed them to continue punishing him. The girl asked me again, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Aren't you with him? And again, I... My fear just rose up, and I denied it. I don't know him. And now I'm, I'm in a place where I'm almost paralyzed by fear. I don't, I don't even know what to do. I couldn't even run away. I, I literally just shrank back into a corner. And for an hour, I stood there, and I watched, and I listened, and I waited in a paralyzed fear that I'd never experienced before. And someone else walked up to me. Man, this time, I think, one of the soldiers maybe, and they looked at me and they said, hey, wait a minute, you have an accent. You have a Galilean accent. You're from Galilee, aren't you? You're one of his disciples. I know you are. At that point, I was just afraid he was going to grab me and drag me into the same torture that they were giving to Jesus. And I I just started cursing. I cursed brought curses down on myself, and I said, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I do not know that man. Three times. And right when I said that, the rooster crowed. And my head became clear. Suddenly I remembered. I remembered. And the shame began to fill my heart. And right at that moment, as the rooster crowed, I saw that they began to lead Jesus up some stairs to go into the house. His hair was caked with blood. His eyes were swollen almost shut. He had wounds all over his body. Looked like he was bleeding to death. But he looked at me. He caught my eyes. In that moment, I expected there to be judgment and hatred and disappointment. But that wasn't what was in his eyes. As he caught my, my, my eyes, my, my, my glimpse, the only thing I felt was compassion. I felt understanding. I felt like, I guess I felt kind of like him saying, I got this. 
I know. I know you failed. But that's not the end. I ran out of that place. I've never wept so bitterly in all of my life. And now we're here. We came to the, to the Sea of Galilee. And I sat in my shame. I wondered what in the world could be the response. Some women had come back from, a, from his tomb where he had been buried. You know, he, he'd gone to a Roman cross. You don't survive that. It's an ugly death. Jesus never said a word except, Father, forgive them. And take my soul, a couple other things, but essentially he went willingly. And then a couple of days later, some women were running around saying that he'd been risen from the dead and they'd seen him and other people had seen him and we were supposed to go to the Sea of Galilee and so here we are and now what? Obviously my life is over. I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And Jesus was having that meal with us and he, um, he looked at me. Again, those eyes. Those, those eyes that could pierce down into the very center of my heart. And he said, Peter, do you love me? <laughs> do I love you? <laughs> what kind of a question is that? I just told the world that I don't even know you because of my own fear and need to protect myself. And yet at the very, you know, very center of my, my being, I know who you are. I know you're my Savior. I know you're my God. You just died on a cross for me and rose again. What possible answer could I give other than, yes, of course I love you? I didn't prove that. I completely failed to act that out, but that's what's in my heart. And he said, feed my sheep. A few minutes later, he asked me again, Peter, do you love me? I'd already answered that question. Yes. Yes, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. A few minutes later, third time. Now I was getting the pattern. Simon Peter, do you love me? Jesus, I do love you. I do. Feed my sheep. Three times for three denials, three restorations. And at that moment, at that moment, I felt the forgiveness and the acceptance, and I felt the shame drain out of my heart. That's where Jesus wanted to take me. And me, <laughs> rugged, fierce, Arrogant, self-promoting <laughs> Peter. So confident that I would protect Jesus to the end of my life in the moment of, moment of danger, I completely failed. But Jesus knew my heart well before I got there. And he went to the cross because he knew I was going to need to recover. I learned some things during that process. I'm still learning them, really. I learned that I really deeply need to be forgiven. (laughs) 
It's not really my sense of failure that's important. It's the sense that this is, this is the condition of my heart. I deeply need to be forgiven. I cannot do this by myself. No matter how much I want to, no matter how much of my own power or my own arrogance I think I can put into something of my own ability, I now recognize that it's, I can't, I'm too weak. I need to be forgiven. I need to be living in the power of Jesus. But I also saw very clearly that Jesus was very willing to do what it took to get me to the place of recovery. He was powerfully able to forgive me. I'd never felt that before. I didn't even really know that was possible until he did it. He showed it to me. And I also realized that no matter how broken my heart is, And I thought pretty much after that it was broken by shame to a place that I couldn't recover. And Jesus showed me his own heart and said, there isn't a a way that your heart can be broken that I I can't fix, that I can't help you recover from. Jesus said, wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. About 50 days later on Pentecost, we were all standing in an upper room. (laughs) And I'd never seen anything like this before, but the Holy Spirit came down on us so powerfully. It was like we could feel it. It was like a wind and a fire and a hurricane all at the same time. And we were blown open and fire came onto us and we started speaking in tongues. And I realized at that point, that was what Jesus was, was doing this for. He did all of this so that we could have that spirit. And now I recognize, I should have just kept my mouth shut for three years and said, I'll just take the Holy Spirit whenever you bring it. I didn't, but now I understand why. That's a powerful story, isn't it? To listen to a guy who actually denied Jesus and then saw and felt the recovery. And I think what Jesus, I think what Peter would tell us is that, you know what? I needed to do that. I needed to fail like that. Because that was the only way I would really understand the power and the depth of the forgiveness and the recovery by grace of Jesus for me. That's who he is for us. And I too now, as I look back 11 years after that, what I consider to be the ultimate failure in my life, where I failed my family, where I failed a church, where I failed even God, I came to that place and I I come to that place and I realized, you know what, that needed to happen. Because God needed to walk me through that valley of failure so he could bring me out to the other side so I could see who he really was. Three weeks ago, well, God gave me a a set of signs during this 11-year process. The sign that he gave me early on, he told me that you're going to meet people from that church. You're going to meet elders. You're going to meet people from the church. You're going to meet leaders. Some of them loved you. Some of them hated you. And as you meet them, you're going to know that you have been in the process of recovering by grace because every time you meet one of them, you're going to be able to talk to them without fear and without shame. And he did that. Two weeks after I was fired by that church, 
the, one of the elders who had been responsible for bringing me there asked me to come over to his house, and he washed my feet. And he says, I want to be reconciled with you. That was the first sign. First sign I was in the process. Another one of the elders asked me to lunch, and he said, yeah, we had a problem with your leadership style, but we also had a problem with us, and I want to personally be reconciled with you. And that went on for 11 years, on and on, on and off. I met people, and each time there was release in my heart. I could release, I could talk to that person, or I could see that person, I could pray for that person without shame, little by little, until three weeks ago. I was sitting in a meeting of of, uh, area pastors. We meet every month to pray into unity and work together. And one of the people there was the pastor of the church that I had been fired by, they had hired after. And though I knew who he was and he knew I was, the, the elders had forbade him from interacting with me. But that day, three weeks ago, we sat around a table, a big table with uh, 25 or so of us there. He sat down next to me. He said, you know, I'm Stacy, and I know who you are, you know who I am, but I just want to formally introduce myself to you, and just, and just so we had a pleasant conversation. At the end of the meeting, we always pull back and take uh, some time to just pray together in groups, and so we slid our chairs back, and Stacy sat next to me, and my good friend Dave, who I... Uh, mentor and, and, and help uh, in his pastoral ministry, another uh, guy, who, Nick, who's part of an international ministry, and a young man who was leading worship that day. And we sat in a circle. The Spirit came into that meeting in a very powerful way. I didn't really expect this. began to pray, and the Spirit really showed us how to pray for each person very directly. My friend Dave prayed deliberately, I think, because he knew the situation, deliberately p- prayed for Stacy and for that church. And when he did that, something happened in my heart. It was as though there, were a, there was a gate, a big, a big iron gate of some kind that kind of flung open in my heart. And my heart was exposed. And, and he gave me permission to pray for that church and for Stacy and for their leaders. And I just asked him, how do you want me to pray? And he flowed out of that prayer And he blessed that church, and he blessed those leaders, and he blessed that pastor. And I could tell he was surprised. I was surprised. But you know what? By that prayer and by that opening of my heart and by that flowing of the Spirit, that was Jesus saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Will you pray for them, my sheep? And I said, yes, I will. And that opened up a door. It opened up a door in my own heart. It opened up a door in his. He asked me to come to lunch this past Wednesday. I went to lunch with him, spoke to him for the first time in 11 years, and told him that era of my life is over. I have spent 11 years walking through the valley of the shadow of failure. And I am now come up out of that valley, and I see a vista that I haven't seen for 11 years of the hope for God and what he wants to do in my life and to tell me that you do not need to stay in that place. That shame is no longer your shame. That failure is no longer your failure. You don't live in that place. And that's the process he wants to take you through. All of us have something stuck in our heart from our childhood or from our marriage or from a relationship we've been in. I have not met a person in the 30 years that I've been doing ministry and the 25 years that I've been doing counseling and pastoral counseling and heart care, I haven't met a person who hasn't had something stuck in their heart that Jesus has to release. 
You know what that process is? It's really not all that hard. It's the one that he took, G through, took Peter through. It's the one he took me through. When you're in chaos, you know, you want to be in good relationships. You want to be in relationships with people, with God. You want to be in an intimate place with him. That's what we, we long for. We come here every Sunday. We come here during the week. We, because we long to be in his presence, we want to learn how to be an intimate relationship with him and other people. But we're stuck. We want to be here, but we're over here in chaos. As Peter was in chaos, I was in chaos. But the process that he brings us through is very straightforward. He says, if you're in chaos with another person, the first thing that has to happen is you have to come to a place of forgiveness. You have to have the debt released. In Peter's case, in my case, I had to come and say, forgive me. You know, I did wrong things. He had to take me through the process of the people that I harmed. I had to ask their forgiveness. But then other people had to do that with me. They had to release the debt they were holding on to. Forgiveness isn't about the other person. It's about me. I need to just get the debt out of me. I don't want to hold on to that anymore. But once you come into a place of forgiveness, and there may be many iterations of that, of releasing those debts, but once you come to that place, then you can talk about reconciliation. Forgiveness is about me. Reconciliation is about us. Now we can come to a place to say, can I live in peace with you? That's the most important question you probably ask anybody in any time of the day. You should ask your, your spouse, your husband, your wife, your children, Jesus. I regularly ask people in my life, am I at peace with you? And if I'm not at peace with you, why not? I'll regularly ask Jesus, am I at peace with you, Jesus? You know how you get those feelings sometimes, just that gnawing sense that something's just not right here? I don't know why, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I think I'm, I think I've, I've asked for forgiveness. I think, I ask him, am I at peace with you? And he'll, he'll either tell me, yes, I am at peace with you. And the lies you're believing about yourself aren't from me, they're from him, that other dude that you shouldn't be listening to. Or he'll say, no, I'm not at peace with you. I'm not at peace with you because of this, because you've believed something that's not true, or you said something to someone you forgot you said, or, you're, or you're, you're, you have something in your heart that I want to show you. But either way, I ask him, and I ask other people. That's reconciliation. Reconciliation is different from forgiveness. Forgiveness is, I let the debt off. Reconciliation is, am I at peace with you? Only when you can say, I'm at peace with you, can you then move to a place of trust. If I move to a place of trust with someone that says, I'm willing to be hurt again. I don't want to be hurt again, but I'm willing to open up my heart with you and come into a relationship with you where I actually am willing to be hurt by you and go back to recovery if I need to. But you're worth it to me. I want to trust you. From a place of trust, you can move to intimacy which is, says we have a mutual, caring relationship with one another that takes care of each other's hearts. Now I'm in relationship. So often when we're in chaos or we enter into a relationship, the first thing we want to do is jump to intimacy. You see so many young people get together and they, they bond up. I'm your boyfriend, I'm your girlfriend. We got on Facebook. I'm in a relationship with Sarah, you know? And the first thing we do then at that point is... Uh, Let's do intimacy because that's the fun part. All right? And so they do intimacy in whatever way. If they're Christians, they do it one way. If they're not Christians, they do it another way. 
And they do their intimacy thing, and then they realize, well, that just busted up my heart. And now they don't know what to do. When really what they needed to do was they needed to enter the relationship on this side and say, is there anything in my life that I'm holding on to I don't forgive you for? So you see the, pat- you see the pattern. Okay? Just remember that pattern. Forgiveness, reconciliation, trust, intimacy, relationship. Okay? That's a process that Jesus wants to take you through every time you're in a place of shame. You don't need to live in that place of shame. You live up here, life, relationships, come to church, pray, go to meetings, do my thing, take care of my kids, go to work. You live in life. And down here is intimacy with God. He deeply wants to be intimate with you, and he wants to to know your pain and share where your heart's at. He wants to be down here. But you know what's between life and intimacy? Shame. And everybody's got this. Some For some it's this deep, and for some it's that deep, and for some it's this deep. Shame here that keeps you from getting down to where God is. And he says, you don't have to stay there. He says, no matter how powerful or poignant, poignant your shame is, it is never permanent. If you are in a relationship with God, if you're in a relationship with God, there is never an amount of failure that you can live in that his grace cannot take you out of. That's where you need to be, and you would need to believe that. So you ask him right now, am I at peace with you? If I'm not at peace with you, is there some shame in my heart that I have not let you come into and take me out of? Okay? Share that with somebody. Believe it, first of all. Share that with someone you trust. There's people here who will pray with you. Now, throughout the week, you don't have to live in that place. Okay? So just make me that one promise. Before you get ready to come at 2 o'clock to this amazing meeting we're going to have about Eastern European missions, just make a promise to Jesus in yourself that you're going to come to peace with him. Okay? You're going to, you're going to leave the shame. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for the, the powerful way that you come into our lives and <laughs> you point out to us that no matter how badly we believe we have failed, maybe some desperate acts of sin that we've been involved in, maybe we've done things, used things, used people in ways that we know are hideous and evil. Maybe we've had things done to us that were hideous and evil shouldn't have happened but you Jesus (laughs) you want so much to come into that place with your healing touch you want to come into that place in our hearts and show us that you can release us from that we don't have to live in pain we don't have to live in shame we can live in a place of forgiveness and peace and trust and intimacy with you and with the people around us So give us the courage, Lord. Give us the faith and the courage to look down in there and let you look down in there and say, daughter, son, come with me. Come with me out of that place. So do that for us, Lord. (laughs) Fill us with your spirit. Pour your spirit out over your sheep here and let them know in a deep place how much you love them. That you sing over them and you dance over them and you exult over them with that's who you are. Good, good father.